All right. Good morning again. Welcome to Hope Community Church Lower Town. Oh, that's too loud. Don't do that. We are in week five of our sermon series, Made for God, Identity, Gender, and Sex. And so if you hear that and you're just visiting, maybe you're pulling your collar a little bit, a little scared. Uh, how do you think I feel? Uh, just kidding. All right. We're happy to teach this. We're excited about it. Um, my name is Paul Stiver again. This is week five. Let's get into it. I wanted to talk about real quick, just self-help. Uh, I kind of sometimes think that that phrase is a bit of an oxymoron. If I need help, don't I need someone else? I don't, how can I? Okay. That's just me. Uh, but I, and then sometimes we hear maybe, uh, the Lord helps those who help themselves. If you aren't familiar with the Bible, that's actually not in there. People made that up in America. That's not a real thing. Uh, God actually helps those who can't help themselves, but we'll get into that as well. I wanted to talk about it because this industry of self-help by 2025 is going to be a $14 billion industry. And so that encompasses books, speakers, self-improvement, audio books, um, uh, just different kind of concert and different coaching things. And then it also includes weight loss programs. $14 billion by 2025. Maybe you're familiar with some of these books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The How of Happiness, Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life, Girl, uh, I think it's Girl, Wash Your Face, Rachel Hollis. Maybe you've been uh, encountered some of these. These are kind of in that self-help lane. I can't sit up here and condemn them, though. I've actually read two of them. Uh, I've read uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, that's what makes me so creepy. And I've, no, I'm just kidding. And then I've read uh, The How of Happiness. I actually read The How of Happiness when I was not a believer, uh, looking to understand how to be more happy. It, uh, I, I'm sure it's, it was a good book. It, it didn't help me. Um, but I, the reason I bring up self-help is because we, we end up kind of when we do these things, we end up with uh, kind of more rules. I mean, the one book is literally rules for life. Uh, we walk away from these books saying, I've got to do it. I've got to just have a stronger will, more discipline, more self-control. And if I do that, then I can have the life I want. But what if it isn't the will? This is what we're going to go after today. What if it isn't the will and me just trying harder that's actually going to bring change in my life? What if it's a worship issue? What if it's actually about what I worship, what I live for, what I give myself to? And so that's why the title of today's sermon is You Belong to Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 20, we're going to be looking at that passage because in that passage, Paul tells the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, tells the Corinthians about fundamental truths that change the way they think about themselves and their identity, uh, the way they think about their own story, the way, they, uh, the way of their hearts relate to God, their behavior, and then their approach to sexuality. And, and uh, just if there was ever an explicit warning, like on old CDs, I could never get the ones that had the explicit warning. I had to get the edited CDs. Thanks, mom and dad. I still listen to the cuss words. Anyway, <laughs> don't care. All right. Anyway, if there ever was one, it would maybe be on this sermon because we're going to be talking about a few things, lust, pornography, masturbation, and fornication, which is a big, it feels like an old timey Bible word. It just means sex outside of marriage, outside of God's design. And so just the bio for this week, the list of sexual sins is long for every good and perfect gift that God has given. We have been quick to dishonor him and tarnish the gift of sex. This week's message will not shrink back from addressing the ugliness and idolatry of sexual sin, but it will not leave us hopeless. The gospel speaks a better word than the empty claims of sexual sin. We hope that many will turn from sin to God and trust him for health and holiness. 
And so in the sermon series, we've already seen a few things. We've seen that God created sex, gender, marriage. He created them good and our sin has made them uh, marred. Uh, we've seen that these things proclaim and the way we treat these things proclaims something to the world. So for example, we saw that marriage done in God's design proclaims the gospel of God's desire to be in relationship with us. Singleness proclaims Christ's sufficiency that we don't need anything or another person outside of us to make us whole. We actually can be whole because we're united to Christ. We're looking to the one thing that can satisfy. But as we talk about this topic, I want to address maybe where you are in your spiritual journey. So moving uh, from left to right is a kind of different steps on the spiritual journey. So maybe you're in here, you're not interested at all, but you came. I guess that wouldn't be you if you're not interested. So maybe you're curiously seeking or searching assertively. Uh, and then the cross kind of comes in and you have this moment of conversion where you make a faith commitment. You say yes to Jesus and that changes everything. That's like walking through a door, as Pastor Brian has said at times, and then now you're on the pathway, experiencing new life, growing in community, making disciples. So that conversion is a big switch. And, I, and when we talk about sins, particularly sexual sins, what you maybe have heard before is teaching on the will, or maybe you've been taught don't act this way before you've even come to faith in Christ. And what we're going to look at today is actually we don't make that call, we don't say live a new way until after you've come to know Jesus. So then one thing we're going to see though is that we all struggle with idolatry. We're going to look at idolatry today. But before we do that, I want to give away a little bit of, of uh, my story uh, and, I, and the struggle with idolatry. I know the struggle with idolatry because I've struggled with it everywhere on that journey, on that spiritual journey. This is a, an image of openbible.info. It's just a website on the internet uh, that you can go and find verses on any topic. And I put that up there, and I'm going to tell this story because I'm okay in Jesus, and, and me and Allison are okay in Jesus, Allison, my wife here. Uh, but when we met and were dating, I was not a believer. I actually came to faith in our relationship. Uh, kind of a wild story that I could tell you more offline. But uh, at one point in our relationship, we were, oh, well, actually, let me get into a little bit of my story. From, from about age 10 until about age 27, I, I don't know if a week went by that I didn't watch porn. And masturbate. That, those, that area of my life was occupied and my time was occupied with a lot of porn and lusting after women, trying to be in relationships, seeking out women for one night stands and different things like that. That was my whole life. That was what I lived for. And then I met Allison. And Allison was a Christian. She was struggling in her faith, but she was a Christian. And when we met, we were because she was struggling in her faith and I didn't know any better because I was just coming to faith, we were fooling around quite a bit. And then one day she came to me and said, we've got to stop this. She felt the conviction. She felt like, I know what I'm doing is wrong. We've got to stop this. And I'm, I was a new believer at that time. I just made that faith commitment. But I have lived this way of pursuing sex and lust for 17 years. So this was very foreign to me. And so I did what anyone would do. I typed in the word sex into a search bar on the internet. No, I went to, don't do that. Uh, unless you're on this website. So I typed in sex, the topical Bible, and I was convinced I'm going to prove to Allison from the Bible that before we're married, 
we can still keep fooling around. And so I typed in sex and I got a million. It says on the top left, you can't see it, a hundred verses on sex. There's probably more. And I'm sitting there as a brand new believer and I'm reading these and over and over, flee sexual morality. If you sin sexually, you're sinning against the body, all these things. And I'm sitting there and I'm ready to make the case that we should, and I can't. This was actually looking at these passages and saying, okay, God, for 17 years, I've thought a different way. I'm going to, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to walk in your ways. This was my first real act of faith in trusting God was with my sexuality. And when I did that, my life started to change. Our relationship started to change. I started to actually love Allison for Allison, not for something she could do for me. I treated her as a human being and we actually grew deeper and deeper into our relationship and, and saw that we were called to marriage. And so that, that's kind of personal for me. That's why we talk about this stuff because there is life there for us. But so often we go after idols. What is an idol? What is idolatry? Idolatry is, this, this is a picture of our hearts. And our hearts have essentially a throne in them. We were made to worship. Idolatry is when we put good things in the place of a God thing. If we're made to worship, that means God should sit on the throne of our hearts. But instead what we do is we kick him out and we put something else on the throne of our hearts. In my example, it was Allison. Allison was my idol. She was the object of my worship. And it's that false worship that's why we sin. One way we've seen that is maybe the classic depiction is Smeagol in the Lord of the Rings. He has an idol. He worships the ring. And more than that, he worships the power the ring can give him. So much so that he kills Deagle or Daigle. I don't know how to say it. Sorry. He kills him, right? To have the ring, his cousin. He worships the ring and his power. When he does that, he does that his whole life. And when he does that, this is the end of his life. Look how dehumanized he is. Look how destroyed by his idol he is. And throughout the, the movies, it's actually fascinating because Frodo shows him love. He shows him humanizing love, and yet he rejects that for this idol. Why? Because when he's conflicted, when Gollum's conflicted, and he's kind of having an argument with himself, he's arguing with his will. And he's not addressing the worship issue that he worships this ring. And so he rejects Frodo and the love of Frodo. In the same way we reject God when we choose idols, including sexual sin. And these things dehumanize and destroy us. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So then you say, okay, how do I know if I have an idol? Here's a couple ways. How do you know you're worshiping? And this, again, this applies to believers and non-believers. An idol hoards your resources, your time, your money, your energy, your thoughts. So it's maybe if you're, uh, you're self-employed in business or you have a profession, you give all your time to it. I got to make it in this industry. I got to make it as this person. I need someone else to see me as this. That's an idol. And then even underneath that, why? What are you trying to prove? Why do you have to prove that? Another one, what are your emotions when something gets in the way of it? That's how you know an idol. I need my coffee. That's, I got to have my coffee. That's more of a jokey one. But also if you get hangry, I'm just saying, start treating people poorly, right? I actually just learned I get hangry. It's, I'm not a good person when I'm hangry. Uh, it means you're hungry and angry if you didn't know one knows that phrase. Uh, an idol becomes something we build our identity on. I always joke about this, but on cop show, I just watched a cop show the other day where they said, I'm a cop. 
It's not what I do, it's who I am. No, you're just the cop. It's what you do. Like, it doesn't have to be, but that's an idol, right? We make it our identity. We compromise on our convictions for our idols. I know the Bible says I shouldn't date an unbeliever, but she's really great. You got to meet her. She's a really good person. In fact, she's better than most Christians I know. And then another way we know if we have an idol is if-then statements. If I have this, then I'm okay. If I have that job, if I have that person's approval, if I have that relationship, then I know I'm okay. Tim Keller says it this way, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. That's power idolatry. I'm loved and respected by blank. That's approval idolatry. I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. That's comfort idolatry. I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. That's control idolatry. These are functional or surrogate saviors. They're things we put on our hearts that give our time and energy to, our love to, instead of God. And if you don't think you have one, and you don't think maybe you don't think you have control idolatry, try loading a dishwasher with someone else. I guarantee you have control idolatry if you ever load a dishwasher with someone else because you say, oh, that's where you put the bowls? I would never put the bowls there because the water's going to shoot up. Guarantee we all struggle with this. These are things that we all wrestle with. And so actually when we see sin, this little chart, that sin going down to idols, sin, we actually see behavior as the outcome of our worship of idols. So you see me snap at you for uh, loading the dishwasher wrong because I think I'm better. I'm worshiping the idol of control. I'm worshiping the idol of my own righteousness. And that's where the sin comes out. So underneath sin is idols, these surrogate saviors. So then that means it isn't will change. If, it, if our problem's a heart issue, it's actually a heart change that we need. We need worship because worship causes heart change. Jesus said this. Jesus showed us this in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. It says in Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying, your behavior thing, that's not your problem. Your problem is your heart. The problem goes deeper than you think. And sometimes in the church, uh, maybe you've gotten told, just change your behavior, fix that, fix this. Do it this way, try this step without ever addressing the heart issue. And that's why we get Matthew 5, 48. And this is a way that we can read the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it concludes this section with, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what Jesus is saying is not, you gotta be perfect or you can't be accepted. What he's saying is, you aren't. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, to drive the wedge between what you think you're good at and who God is, so that you can actually see God for who he is. And when we do that, we actually can worship. And that's where we go today, that the Apostle Paul is going to show us how to have heart change, how to worship God, how to overcome our idols. And so this is a picture of Corinthians, the Bridezilla of Christ. This was an old hope sermon series back in the day. And, and Bridezilla just means that this was the Corinthian church. They were the bride of Christ, but they were a Bridezilla because the apostle Paul starts this church and then they just go crazy. They go into all kinds of sin. They're running wild. And Paul knows that. And so he writes to them to encourage them out of sin and out of idolatry. But we've got to see something because what you think when they, when all of a sudden his church turns to chaos is that he's going to drop the, the Bible hammer on them. 
And instead, here's what the Apostle Paul does. Here's what he says to them in in chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See the tenderness, the grace, the compassion of Paul. Even though he knows how messed up they are in all the ways they're rejecting God because they've come to this other side of the cross and they've started their new life and they're journeying through it. And the apostle Paul wants them to understand something. So he shows them this grace and he gives them these gospel reminders. And yet he's not going to avoid their real sin issues. He's going to address them. He talks about sexual morality. He talks about them having lawsuits and all kinds of other things, which leads us to chapter six, where they're doing wrong. So they've come to this new life in Christ, but they're still doing wrong. And so he says to them this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Real quickly, this is a vice list. We see these all over in the scriptures. In these vice lists, there's no sin greater than the other. They're all evil. And they're showing us that we have a myriad of ways that we reject God. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. These people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we look at this, this is a pattern of living. These aren't people that struggle with sin from time to time. This is a pattern of living that demonstrates they reject God, that they have hostility to God and his ways. When Paul says that, he reminds them of that. And then here's what he says to them. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He doesn't give them law. He tells them who they are. He doesn't condemn them. He reminds them of what God has done, that God has put our sin in past tense and our past in past tense because of what he's done in the past, washed us, sanctified, which just means made us holy, justified us. I don't think the apostle Paul, when he was trying to remind them of the gospel, used Billy Madison, but I will. If you don't know Billy Madison, Billy Madison is a movie where Adam Sandler is a grown up and he has to, he wants to inherit his father's company, but he has to go back to school. Uh, This image is of the, of him and Ernie, Ernie, they have, uh, pee pants. We'll talk about it. <laughs> I have to explain it. I can't just put that up and not explain it. Now, in the scene, they're on a field trip. He's in third grade. They're on a field trip, and Ernie is standing up against the wall. Ernie's already a little bit of an outcast, and he's standing up against the wall, and they say, what's wrong? And so Billy Madison goes and checks on him, and Ernie turns, and he says, I had an accident. He's got pee on his, on his crotch. I had an accident. And so Billy Madison says to him, he looks at, and he sees some water on a fountain over there. And so he runs over to the fountain and he puts the water on his pants. 
and he comes back and a kid goes, hey, everybody, look, Billy peed his pants. And then he goes, oh, everybody pees, everybody my age pees their pants. Peeing your pants is the coolest. And we get that classic line from that old lady. I got to say it. She goes, if peeing your pants is cool, call me Miles Davis. Anyway, we got it. We had to do that one, the whole scene, right? Now, how is that the gospel? How is that washed, justified, sanctified? Here's how. Ernie standing against the wall, covered in shame, alienated. Just like we, in our sin, are covered in shame, alienated from God, from righteousness. And so what does Billy Madison do? He actually shows us what Jesus does. Unites himself to us in our shame. Absorbs the cost, the potential cost of ruining his reputation. To be united to Ernie in his shame. And then flips the script on it. So that Ernie, actually what happens then is, I didn't know, they, all the kids are like, I didn't know peeing your pants was cool. And now Ernie is, instead of being alienated, he's cool. He's in. In other words, he's righteous. That's the gospel. Christ unites himself to us and washes us, makes us holy, cleanses us by absorbing the cost and paying our penalty, taking our shame. so that we could have his righteousness. And so Paul is saying that to the Corinthians, you are united to Christ now. Continuing on in chapter six, verse 12, it says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's Paul responding to them. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So that word mastered there is another way of thinking about idolatry. And what Paul is trying to say is reframe your identity, reframe your self-understanding. And he says it by telling them the body is made for God. That's actually why we named the series this way. The body's not made for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's united himself to us, Paul's saying. That word for sexual immorality is in the Greek porneia, which is actually where we get the word pornography. Uh, and so porneia can, is kind of a blanket term, and it actually, because porn masturbation are not in the Bible, but porneia itself covers a, a myriad of sins, including the ones we're talking about today. And what Paul's saying is sexual sin tells the wrong story about God. This is the true story. God made our bodies for the Lord and the Lord for us. And so let's get into the specific sins that we're called to look at this week. First, lust. How is lust idolatry? Lust is just a strong, I think King David, when he sees Bathsheba, right? Lust is a strong craving or desire that we can allow to govern us instead of God. Then we start to desire God's gifts more than God. And lust proclaims a false gospel to us because it proclaims a created thing. That thing, whatever it is, is better than God and that we, not God, get to choose what is best for us. And these sins turn human beings into objects as means to an end. Most often, those means to an end get, end up getting hurt. Women, children. We see that in lust. We see that in pornography. 
Lust is proclaiming a false gospel. Pornography and masturbation are idolatry and they proclaim a false gospel. Pornography and masturbation displace God by attempting to prove that we are sufficient to satisfy ourselves apart from Christ. That's the idolatry. I got this, God. Stay away from me. How it proclaims a false gospel, these things tell the fundamentally wrong story about sex that it is about taking as opposed to giving and portray God as insufficient to satisfy our souls. We're not going to zoom in on the obvious harm. I hear a lot of sermons where people just look at and and cite the data of of how pornography dehumanizes us and destroys us. I think we get that. Both secular and religious sources prove time and time again these things eat us alive. They make us less than human. They cause people to become prey. Fornication is idolatry. Again, that just means sex outside of marriage outside of God's design is idolatry because it says, I reject Jesus as Lord, seeing intimacy, that's in quotes, without God-ordained commitment, which is marital covenant, and outside of God's design. I'd rather have intimacy with this person than trust your design, God, rejecting God, rejecting his ways. How does it proclaim a false gospel? So my desires for wholeness are capable of being met by another, whether in relationship with them or just in a one-night stand. This person can meet my needs. And that wholly apart from Christ. God's ways aren't good or trustworthy because I know better what I need. This could be pursuing a relationship with someone that's not a believer. This could be living with someone before marriage. These things proclaim a false gospel. I say, I can can have intimacy without commitment. What God's whole design is that you would enjoy real intimacy in your heart and your soul in commitment, in security, without fear that someone could leave at any moment. I got to say this out of all of these is where I've seen most people walk away from Christ in my time. I came to faith in 2015. If I had to list all the people I've seen walk away from Christ, this is why. They chose relationship. They chose sex over God. I said, this person's enough. I don't need God anymore. It's hard. Our small group's material says it this way. We are saved for oneness to Christ, but to engage in sexual immorality is commensurate to becoming one with a prostitute. We'll see that in the next slide. It is a type of spiritual adultery. Why? Because we belong to the Lord. He has purchased us with his blood and sexual morality, truly any sin, actually mimics the oneness which is to be reserved for Christ. So Paul says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. He's reminding them the story. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? That sex actually has consequences. You can't just have it flippantly. Why? Because it is said the two will become one flesh. He quotes scripture. But then he says this, whoever is united with the Lord is united with him in spirit, he's wanting them to remember who they are in Christ. You have been united with Christ. That changes the way you think about your life, your behavior, and your sexuality. But he's ta- not giving them law. He's giving them the story. David Garland says it this way. Paul seeks to clarify, lest any misunderstand, that Christian freedom does not allow one to pursue pleasure wherever it leads. 
Christians are controlled by an entirely different ethic, a different view of freedom, and a different Lord. Freedom is freedom from something, but for it to be meaningful, it must be freedom for something. He conceives of freedom in terms of belonging to another, not in terms of self-determination or self-interest. Those things would be idolatry. The more one seeks life's meaning in God, the freer one becomes. Paul does not condemn them for failing to obey the law that forbids porneia, nor does he command them to obey the law. He argues instead that they should live in ways congruent with who they are, those who belong to Christ and are destined to live with Christ. A new identity defined by Christ, not because you chose it, but because he chose you. Not defined by your willpower to fight and overcome sin, but approaching sin in a new way because you've been changed. As the great theologian Mufasa once said, be who you are. Remember who you are. That's what Paul's doing here. I don't know if Mufasa studied a lot. I don't know what seminary he went to, but. All right, so that's where we now get this. When we remember who we are, now Paul says, here's the new way to live. Here's what it looks like on this side of the cross. Flee from sexual immorality. That word means what it means. Get away from it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Sexual sins proclaim to us, you belong to your desires. You are your desires. They define you. Jesus proclaims to us, you belong to me. I define you. I'm your savior. So then if you are in here and you're saying, okay, that's where I am, or that's where I want to be. I want to remember this good news. I want to remember I'm united with Christ, that I'm not my own. I belong to Christ, but man, I struggle. And that's all of us. Every one of us in here is convicted by that list in some way or another. How do we then live congruent with the gospel? How do we live with sexual integrity? I want to put forward three things, gospel plus community plus time. The gospel, that reality that you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God is the thing that we come back to over and over and over. I'm united to Christ. That's why I don't sin. That's why I reject those other things. Because Christ is better. And we apply those truths over time in community. For that gospel, uh, Dane Ortland says this, as a Christian, I'm in the process of bringing my sense of self, my identity with a capital I, the ego, my swirling internal world of fretful panickiness arising out of that gospel deficit into alignment with the more fundamental truth. Richard Hayes argues in the moral vision of the New Testament that the essence of the New Testament ethic is be who you now are. 
There it is. You are this new being fundamentally as one united to Christ. So wake up tomorrow and do whatever you have to with the Bible, singing, prayer, meditation, a friend, listening to a sermon, a walk around the block. Do whatever you have to, do whatever you must to start your day in gospel alignment. That's what Paul is saying to them. Be who you are. You've been made new in Christ. So do what it takes, not to change your will. He tells them the story so that they would worship. All these things are worship. And then community. Frodo also gets taken by the ring. But who helps him? Samwise. We can't do this alone. We can't fight idols alone. We need friends that ask us the why ladder. Just six questions of why do that? Why did you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you love that? Why do you think that? That get down into our heart and reveal the lie that we're worshiping. And, and then they ask us, what truth do we need to hear? And they give us a free space to confess. If we're okay in Jesus, we should create that kind of community where we can confess. Rebecca Hanna, in an article called Women Use Porn 2, says it this way. The more we conceal our sin, the harder our hearts become. And sin always harms, even when it seems private. This includes masturbation and pornography. This includes sexting. This includes lustful thoughts. As explicit as it is to write those words, she says, we must be clear that true freedom and holy restoration are available to women who struggle in these ways. Believers silent about their sin waste away in grief. When we isolate ourselves, we prize the pride our shame protects over the holiness our humility allows. So shame tries to protect us, but the gospel sets us free to actually confess. And when we do, we can experience true freedom, holy restoration. This is for women and men. She continues, people don't change because of the power of statistics or hearing about the devastating effects of porn. People change through the transforming power of the gospel. People change by submitting to the truth of God's word rather than the ravenous appetite of the flesh. And people change with help from one another. She says, pornography and any of the sins we looked at are a spiritual problem rooted in the deceitfulness of idolatry, false worship. And like all idolatry, we need one another in the fight. A Christian struggling with porn needs other believers to help her slay sin by the power of God's word. So we do this in community. And we do this over time. And my story, uh, when I was convicted of sin on porn, uh, actually fasted for four days and I've never looked at porn since. That's rare. It can happen. And I think we should pursue it, but we don't put that forward as a hero story. Often this is a roller coaster of fighting sin in community with the gospel over time. Because the reality is I still struggle with lust. I still struggle with a myriad of other sins. And I need others to remind me the truth of the gospel. And over time, God's spirit changes us. There is hope for us. On time, Jen Oshman says this. Here's the best news for those of us who have ever purchased a fake, ever gone after an idol. The heart of our Father in heaven is merciful and abounding in grace. No matter which counterfeits we have pursued, no matter which idols we have adored, our Father stands ready to offer everlasting life and deep peace to us even before we realize we bought a lie. Even as we labor 
For that which does not satisfy, our God says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul, and hear that your soul may live. So we've got to see God's mercy for those of us, all of us who've gone after idols, all of us who've been convicted of these sins, God stands there with mercy. That's how he thinks of those who reject him who go after other things. He loves us and he's waiting for us to come back to him. And we know that because of the gospel. So go back to this list here, this graphic. Because the way we worship into idolatry, the way we all act like Gollum and the things we set up on the throne of our hearts, we worship into those. So we've got to worship our way out by seeing Jesus for who he is. The gospel is the opposite of self-help. It's Christ's help. When we see him for who he is, he changes us. Because the truly human one dies for dehumanized idolaters like us. The one who was sufficient in himself and never craved a thing dies for lustful dehumanizers like us. The creator who should have been worshiped forever, the son of God, dies for those who reject him. The self-giving one dies for the takers. When we see that, it changes us. The faithful one dies for the unfaithful. And when we see Jesus like that, he gets on the throne of our hearts. We worship him. And he pulls us out of our sin and our shame into true joy and freedom. He shows us because of what I've done, Jesus says, you're washed, you're justified, you're sanctified. You are okay in me. And remember that now because that's going to change who you are for the rest of your life like it did for me. So as gospel response again, just gospel community plus time. Which one of these is lacking in your life? Which one do you need to lean into more? My guess is it's probably community. But the gospel sets us free to share our deepest and darkest with one another. And then secondly, just remember, this is all I want for you today. Remember you belong to Christ. Remember what he thinks of you. He loves you. He delights in having you. And he's washed you. He's justified you. He's sanctified you. The way we get to remember uh, is by taking communion. I've got cups of bread and juice here on my left and right. Uh, we're going to take communion at Hope. We practice what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. Uh, we just want you to be someone who said, yes, I've, I've had that faith encounter. I've given my life to Christ. This communion is a reminder of his body broken for us, his blood shed for us that tells us we now are okay in Jesus because of what he's done. And we need that. We do it every week because we need that reminder. We need that reminder that we belong to Christ. And then for all of us, because I know all of us in here are struggling with idolatry in some way, worshiping some other thing, we're going to sing. Second song, especially, I want you to sing your head off because we worship our way out of idolatry when we see Jesus for who he is. I'm going to pray and we'll continue on with the service. God, we love you. And we thank you for that reality that when we put other things on the throne of our hearts and rejected you, 
You sent your son, the firstborn of all creation, to die for us. You love us that much. You love us so much that you give us a new identity, a new story, a new way of thinking about our lives, our behavior, and our sexuality. You don't command us to change. Instead, you tell us that story over and over, and you change us. So God, we pray you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.